You're listening to Dead Air Podcast, part of SplatterPictures.net. What's up, everybody? Wes, Dead Air Night here with... Always. Typical Lydia. Today's show, we're going to be doing the 1988 classic waxwork. That was a, like a mommy sound? It's like a, not mommy with an O, but mommy with a U. <laughs> That's what my mom used to sound like in the morning. <laughs> my <laughs> mommy too. Can I have two dollars for school? Uh, yeah. I made 20 by accident. See you, mom. Yeah. <laughs> you need some caffeine, Wes. I do. I have a cup of tea here, which is actually making me more cozy than awake. Ah, uh, I should have picked some of the darker teas. I have a wide selection of tea, but I'm always jacking you full of coffee for whatever reason when I know you like tea. I do like tea. Yeah. We're very, um, you know, like, we're Canadian, so we're practically British. we got to have our tea. That's one thing about this particular movie. It has no Canadian uh, flavor, aside from the mention of coffee at the beginning. But it is like, it could basically be considered like a, a British-American <clears throat> thing, right? Because they include the term waxwork. <laughs> I know. That was the, like one of the first things during the beginning of this movie is my querying. Would, like Because these teens are walking by and being like, oh, that's a weird place for a waxwork. You're fucking American teens. You're like... Bobby Sue and Mickey Joe. You don't know the word waxwork. You don't know what a waxwork is. You're not intrigued by a waxwork. You don't know what is a good or good not good place for a waxwork. There was this old episode of Highlander the series where um, they kept referring to a dagger as a stiletto. <laughs> and, and, and I remember at the time just being like, why... It's why are they all calling this a stiletto? Like, they wouldn't know that word. They would just call it a knife. When people go into a grocer and go looking for aubergines and scallions. Scallions, yes. Who the fuck are you people? Yeah. And what's the other one? Dandelion? Dandelion? Do you have any dandelion? (laughs) Dandelion aubergines. Yeah. A A waxwork is not what we call this this is a great tie-in of course to our previous film house of wax because we would call it a fucking wax museum like a normal human being yeah yeah we wouldn't call it uh, a wax work now as much as i would prefer that we did adopt the queen's english yes of wax work and call things by their real true proper name it's just not what it's called in the united states which is where this film was made Mm -hmm. so yeah a wax work Mm -hmm. This is also a Lydia pick. Yeah, it's totally a Lydia pick <laughs> because it's a nice, it, it sort of runs the gamut of all of our favorite horror movie monsters, some <clears throat> villains, some historical villains, some yeah. made up not historical villains. What? Do not disparage my creativity and my belief that, you know. Obviously, real things like zombies and vampires are historically accurate, while fake things like Jack the Ripper and the Marquis de Sade are complete gobbledygook. And Nutty Zombies from Hell, in fact, took place in a real cemetery not far from here. 
It's like Return of the Living Dead. It's like, have you heard of that movie, Night of the Living Dead? Yes, they felt that they couldn't use that as a model for the zombie portion of the show. The Nutty Zombies, what was it, Nutty Zombies from Hell or whatever? Yeah. It sounds like an Astro Zombies or um, I was a teenage zombie type um, shit. This does combine a lot of our things. We, and we've got like sort of this classic, almost a hammer horror feel in a lot of scenarios. And we have, like, I think they dip into black and white, which makes me think the Nutty Zombies from Hell is absolutely just Night of Living Dead. <clears throat> we go into some, like, I don't know, really absurd, not things that we would generally think of as horror, but I suppose the Marquis de Sade scares some people. Marquis de Sade sort of, like, encapsulates that um, Grand Guignol French uh, era which is considered to be almost like the cradle of life for um, a lot of splatter horror and um, what would later turn into like Grindhouse and stuff like that. The Grand Guignol theaters were um, essentially a place in which the the most grotesque um, and uh, salacious stories could be told about murder and sex and all that stuff based off the works of Voltaire and 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 shit like that and the Marquis de Sade. So like I could see I could see how they would want to sort of incorporate the Marquis de Sade, and make things just a little hornier. It is a little hornier. And I found the vampire scene well done with that balance mm-hmm. of, um, like, it's a bodice ripper to a certain extent, and mm-hmm. it does have some classic <clears throat> vampire look, but you're mentioning Grand, Grand Guignol here. That portion with the man with the flayed leg is so very theatrical, and it's yeah. not something I'd expect from a vampire story. Um, and they do have flashes. Like, when we skip all the way to the end of this, we get to see a representation of pretty much any horror monster outside of, like, a kaiju. Yeah. <laughs> we basically get everybody in yeah. the mix. As far as our group of teens that barely attend school, I guess they go and party all night and they're well-to-do so they can go to a waxwork party, as one of the parents call it, uh, late at night. They are like a mix of different types, like we normally see in a lot of these horror films that have to do with a group of teens. We don't get like our stoner, our jock, our bad girl, our good girl. We have varying shades of the same sort of person. Mm-hmm. We kind of get Daphne from Scooby-Doo, but just colored a little differently here and there. And we get Freddy, but just colored a little differently here and there. Because one guy's a little more outspoken the other guy's a little more reserved but they're both pretty much twinsies Mm -hmm. the girls are all pretty much twinsies too they all dress the same they're all from the same social class that's a big thing yeah um generally speaking um the the mixture of types in 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 uh particularly slasher movies but horror in general um the biggest thing that's always hard to swallow about those things is you're talking about people from like completely different class uh classes right it's like the stoner kid is usually like the poor kid and the good girl is like middle class and like you know the freddies and the daphnes of the groups are always like super rich yeah and not just rich rich super rich is the best way to put it they have butlers they have like servants they have chandeliers and winding staircases and tables so big that you could like hide your dead underneath them you know you have um a really interesting uh mixture and also everyone is acting so fucking arch like people the dialogue in this movie is wild to me it is and what's hilarious is that it is all written by one guy tony hiscox i suppose you pronounce his name 
I want to say Hickok, like Wild Bill Hickok, but there's yeah. nests in there. And we'll get into like some of the particular, the cutout scenes. I don't know what you call them, the waxwork scenes. Mm-hmm. Um, they're written very, very well, very fluently. And there's a lot of thought to a lot of that dialogue. Mm-hmm. And conversely, there's a, not a lot of thought to the dialogue of the wraparound story, which basically is a wraparound story. Yeah. Um, and to the point that you had pointed out at one point when Dana Ashbrook's character, Tony, sounds like he's ad-libbing. He definitely sounds like he's fucking ad-libbing. Now we have our this mix of teens. It's three girls and two guys. And one of the guys is played by Dana Ashbrook. Uh, I'm, we're currently watching all the Twin Peaks right now from beginning oh. to end. All the extra stuff, all the lost uh, footage, all of the the film. Yeah, you're going to watch like the Laurel Palmer movie and shit? We're going to watch every single thing. <clears throat> and we're watching... All of the original run with the Log Lady intros, which oh. is something I've never seen. So I'm really yeah, excited about that. Mm-hmm. It's fantastic. And Dan Ashbrook is one of my favorite characters in that because he seems so out of time. So, like a lot of people in, in David Lynch things do seem out of time, mm-hmm. but him in particular. And he's so surreal. Like he is the most surreal person in that. And he's, there's a little bit of that captured in here. And I really find, like, I don't know about your point of view. Does the Sarah character, played by Deborah Foreman, doesn't she look a lot like Laura Palmer? The the blonde chick looks more like Laura Palmer. The Gemma girl? She looks more like Laura Palmer. I'm trying to envision her. I'm always, Laura Palmer to me is like, anytime I picture her, she's like in plastic. But yeah. like, <laughs> like, um... I think the bl- the blonde chick who gets killed by the vampire. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah. She looks okay. more like Laura Palmer to me. She does even more so when she's wrapped up in that thing. I don't know. I'm on the other side of the fence there. Um, even though I had wanted to see more screen time with Dana Ashbrook and her side by side so I could draw that comparison a little more cleanly. Mm-hmm. Um, he checks out pretty pretty rapidly here. But I had to pick this after doing House of Wax, which is super fun and sticks to a very good and I think a very intelligently wrought story. This one maybe doesn't have a very intelligently wrought story, but it has that sort of feel of all the different scenarios that you could see happening in a waxwork or a House of Wax or a wax museum. I like this movie. Um, again, not so much from the idea that, like, I think it's like a super solid story. I think what it is is it represents um, what I love in certain movies. And we've seen this a lot outside the genre, but sticking to horror, something like Monster Squad. Yeah, it's like a lookbook of horror favorites. Yeah, it's like the the screenwriter or director or whomever was the person responsible, the the, the brainchild of this film or any film like it. We're monster kids that grew up and found themselves in a scenario in which they kind of treat writing a horror film like a Chinese menu, just a little of this and a little of that and a little of this, because it's almost like they're just shooting their wad. Listen, I don't know when I'm ever going to be able to do a mummy movie, but I want to do a mummy movie. I don't know when I'm ever going to be able to do a werewolf movie or a vampire one or a zombie flick or... Or like a historical piece about Marquis de Sade. I don't know when I'm going to be able to do any of these things. So I'm going to do all of them. And I, since they're essentially vignettes, I am going to allow myself to treat the audience to entering the third act of all of these genres. And I'm going to fill each scene with 
crystal clear archetypes. You don't need to know their names. You don't need to know what they're doing because you've seen this scenario a thousand times. And it's a little more rich in a way. And I feel weird saying this. It's a little more rich than Cavern in the Woods because we get a a good look at some really wonderfully wrought Mm -hmm. heroes and villains from horror or lore. But this, like you're saying, a vignette at the third act of X film. Yeah. And not just, not just, you know, Cabin in the Woods was basically just like, hey, you like Hellraiser? Look at this guy. He's kind of like that. (laughs) Or like, you like The Purge or you like The Strangers? Here you go. Look at these guys. And like, you like Ghost Girls, Witches or whatever. Here's some zombies. Here's some zombies. More different zombies. But this is like, oh, you like, you like werewolf movies. We're going to shoot this scene like a werewolf movie. Oh, you like zombie movies. You like Night of the Living Dead. We're going to shoot this in black and white with Dutch tilts because you love that shit. Yeah. That's what I like. We're going to fucking play you a, zom- a mummy story. We're going to fucking play Swan Lake in the middle of We're going to play Swan Lake and we're going to go from the beginning to the end. You are like thrust into the role of the assistant to this mm-hmm. Tomb Raider. And... It's fully believable because of the way that they're using the camera, the camera angles, the music, the lighting. Mm-hmm. The uh, the caliber of the actors is ramped up significantly when mm-hmm. you're dealing with these little vignettes. You are. They've peppered it with just pure thespians, people who yeah. are going to take this their little roles very seriously. And then this film plays with something that I'm kind of obsessed with not only as a genre fan but as a storyteller myself it's it's like allowing yourself to believe in the narratives being told to you you feel like you're in danger you feel like you're part of the story and you get into it it could cost you your life in this story if you believe if you believe in something that's fake it can kill you whether or like and and if you don't believe in it you're fine it's just a movie yeah. That's fascinating to me because it's blending this idea of what's real, what isn't through stories because we're affected. We feel real things while we watch and read stories. So this movie like is just playing with all these different themes. So it's goofy, but it's also incredibly deep to me. And it's that fourth <laughs> wall breaking because in the the threshold of all of these scenes that you would see walking through any wax museum Mm -hmm. like you have or any dark ride as a Mm -hmm. matter of fact um you are that physical you you are at the threshold of that physical fourth wall Mm -hmm. and there's no better place to experience that outside from your couch i guess or the movie theater in real life than something like a wax museum but nothing happens or a museum exhibit um, you could go to the Museum of Nature and, and play this game if you want. There's yeah. that bubble under the polar bear exhibit yeah. where you can almost feel that danger of, at least, good thing I'm protected from all these stuffed polar bears with this giant glass bubble protecting me. <laughs> I've never really understood what that's supposed to do, that bubble, but it's fun. But that is like that literal fourth wall. And it does that dual duty because these are by and large films. We recognize most of these characters from films. Mm -hmm. So it makes it very fun. The movie asks you to believe that the films are based off of real historical people and situations. So the Family Opera, I mean, yes, there is, like, the Family Opera, the story is based off of, like, a real theater. But, I mean, there was no fan of the fucking opera. Or was there? 
name this werewolf. Name this family that is a family of werewolves. It could be any family that you look Anthony up. Lupus. Yeah. <laughs> Lupus. That you look up in historical accounts of people who may have had a werewolf type affliction. In the historical accounts of things that they maybe blame on vampires, Strigoi, or whatever. It could be one of those families. They never say. They don't have to say. It's a guy that's a werewolf. His son's becoming a werewolf. That's all you need to know. It could be anybody. But we recognize it so readily from films that we want to be mm-hmm. like, this is what this is taken from this film, isn't it? Or is it <clears throat> taken from real fact, like the Phantom of the Opera? And you had pointed out this one point where the owner of the waxwork, David Winston, I believe his name is, David Warner, actually, sorry, played by David Lincoln, who's also a Twin Peaks alumni. There's two Twin Peaksians in this film. But the owner of the waxwork is confused about this. Oh, they made a movie about this phantom? Yeah. And because he is thinking of the real life one. Mm -hmm. Because it becomes sort of important that all these things actually do exist by the end of the film. Yeah, it is. uh, It it goes into some buck wild territory. Um, There is a, 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 a surreal bent to this film. It's appropriate that there's two... Uh, David Lynch alumni in it because this is almost like a twisted version of Twin Peaks meets the fucking love boat. Like, it's so wild to me. Twin Peaks meets the love boat. Or or like Fantasy Island. Fantasy Island. And it's not only about the little person that is there to greet you at the door. He he reminded me very much of the beginning of Fantasy Island. Yeah. Yeah. Did you know that that actor was the body double for the character Alf? Oh, really? Yeah, they were the. Anytime that they shot Elf in wide shot or someone was in an like elf running costume, away, what, yeah. Away, it was yeah. that actor. Huh. Fantastic work, sir. Mm-hmm. Um, this guy has a much more distinct voice and he has a much more distinct sound effects because I don't know about you, but when I bow violently to all the people entering my domicile, I don't make a. Yeah. Although I've tried horror experiment wise. To make that sound with a knife. You know how much it takes, how much arm effort it takes to make a knife make that sound through the air? Yeah, I know. I do because I've also done it. And also just like any time that like anyone is sheathing or unsheathing something, it just makes that like shing all the time. And I was like, knives certainly don't make that noise. Unless you've got like one of those stay sharp sharpeners inside your sheath. True. Yeah, which I don't think they had the the ceramic Jinsu knife technology all all of our lives. But um, we could try bowing violently as fast as possible and see if we make that noise. I thought about doing it, and then I thought I might bang my head on your table. Banging our heads or just having that, that blood rush from centrifugal force that may not bear well, we'll probably pass out. Yes. But this little guy doesn't, probably because of his like lower center of gravity, perhaps. I, I'm starting to believe that he actually does make this sound. He, he, can you imagine he makes it with his mouth? He's just like, and they're just like, leave it in, it's fine. That's hilarious. Like the little girl that played baby Godzilla while she was in her little outfit. Yeah, and she's like, If they would have left those noises in, that would have been helpful. But no, this it is surreal. And there's also a giant to go along with this, a giant counterpart, sort of a Lurch kind of character in this lurch. house. It's, a, it's, a, it's like Lurch the way that you would believe Lurch would be someone who would manhandle somebody and break their neck. Yeah, yeah. 
if he wasn't just such a big teddy bear. My mom used to work for this woman who was like this weird British woman. And my mom was like basically her assistant. Yeah. And my mom had an office phone and I would answer it occasionally. I'd be like, hello. I was teenagers like, hello. And so she started calling me Lurch because that's how I answered the phone. Like you rang. And then it turned into Lurchy. And then she would answer the phone and she'd be like, oh, hello, Lurchy. Is your mommy there? And that's how she used to. Lurchy. Lurchy. My dad had trained um, my nephew to respond with, you rang in a large voice every time someone called him. (laughs) And he was pretty young, but it was very funny to all of us. But yeah, there is like, and it is Twin Peaksian in that we have the giant and the little man from another place or the arm, depending on what you want to call him. So it does remind you very much of those characters. Um, aside from that, aside from having some Twin Peaks alumni, aside from having a, a little man and a giant, it is kind of like weird. The opening scene is another place out of time. It's a very, very upscale mansion where one of these kids live, Mark, who is friends to Sarah and China and Gemma and Tony specifically. Uh, I'm not too worried about Jonathan because Jonathan and Gemma only kind of flit in and out. But Tony is my favorite because that's a Dana Ashbrook character. But Mark's family, I don't know. We don't hear much about his mother. We hear tell of a grandfather later on in the story. But we have like him and his mother having breakfast at the table, which consists of probably cherry pie earlier. We don't know what. But giant glasses of milk. A giant glass of milk and a giant glass of orange juice, both of which he doesn't touch. No, and I wouldn't either because those will definitely curdle in your stomach and can't be a good way to start any day. Uh, but all he wants is coffee, and his mother says that he can't have it until he's grown up, which is crazy. But Yeah, he's like 40. Yeah, totally. And he goes to leave the house and is uh, met by the butler who feeds him his cup of caffeine, and he drinks it a lot like a Dale Cooper. And it's yeah. just... you're. Oh, you hear in your head. Fine cup of coffee. That's what I hear in my head with the look on this guy's face and the way he goes ah, after it. Like, that is what you say after that. It's very Lynchian. Yeah. Yeah. It's wonderfully Lynchian. And it's a, a treat to know that there is some alumni in this. And right now, because I'm watching all the Twin Peaks over again. But that's really where the end, the comparison ends. Because then we dive into crummy dialogue and not that good acting amongst these teens who go on to have a bleacher party at school. They don't attend class barely, it seems. Yeah. They they do attend the class of their history teacher who has a full-on Nazi flag in yeah. the classroom. Very fucking strange. And I think his lesson is fascism. Can it work? And he's got full posters of Adolf Hitler and he's got like propaganda like u.s propaganda world war ii posters and shit like that with like the caricatures of um the japanese the 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 japanazi menace and shit like that like it's fucked up yeah um wouldn't fly in a teacher doing that nowadays like here's my nazi flag absolutely not um it's it seems to be a placeholder in situations like this you can tell what a writer cares about and what a director cares about and where they have their best actors and where they put their time in is with all the vignettes 
that's what they care about. They don't. They know that they need everything else as the 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 cartilage yeah. to keep all of this fucking shit together. But they don't care about it, and because it's all first draft, they it's wasted all... a lot of time and money, though, in my opinion, because we didn't need to see these kids go to their fake school and not attend class and hang out on the bleachers. They True. could have met up after school, mentioned that they go to school, like mentioned that they were walking to school when mm-hmm. they first encountered the waxwork, and then skip school entirely. Like, don't show us that. We know they go to school. Where else would they go? Mm-hmm. They meet at the peach pit for coffee after or something. <laughs> Well, wouldn't you be in the peach pit, considering these kids? Yeah. Yeah. They seem like the type. They wear, like, Miami Vice skinny ties and blazers to school. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely California. Yeah. It's a California movie through and through. Absolutely no regard or understanding about how that world actually works. Yeah. Yeah. When they go to this waxwork party, I mean, like, the guy who owns it shows up like a creepy Willy Wonka and there's this weird um like undertone of sexual energy and sexuality in all of this and i'm wondering like <clears throat> particularly with the sarah brightman character who anytime that you depict um chaste characters uh it's usually you know they don't usually delve into the fact that they have like a, a hypersexual um kinky uh undertone to all of that and shit like that where it's like Oh, she's like the quote unquote virgin, but not only is she the virgin, she also is into like, you know, hardcore like BDSM or she she would be. Um when she's awoken fully. She's yeah. Her achieving her first orgasm at the end of a whip. Yeah. And um, which they actually cut out some of the more intense orgasmic scenes. Cool. From that, apparently. So there's a longer version out there. I mean, you know what? I'll, I'll look for it. But um there is uh but not just with her character, with a lot of characters, a lot of lingering eyes, a lot of, um, you know, uh, the blonde woman whose name is escaping me. But, um, you know, she her whole vampire sequence is very romantic and gothic and sexual in that way, like Anne Rice and, and shit yeah, like that. Yeah. But like, and then there's also like this undertone of like partner swapping, where people just kind of seem to like date within the group and there's no permanence to anything like china's character seems to have dated everybody is about to date anybody and is dating some jock that's barely on screen yeah uh, except for one moment when we get to make fun of his sweater but no and those lingering eyes even evident when she's meeting a very obviously older gentleman who has real no interest in her aside from luring her into the wax work yeah just being like a really creepy Willy Wonka he's even dressed in Willy Wonka's colors and shit at first yeah he definitely yeah, at first, is yeah. but like yeah and, and she refers to him as like oh he's so hot I'm like he looks like a very much older than you British gentleman who I would not describe as like hot hot no no no, no. Like, that's the wrong word he looks like tepid isn't even the right word he looks kind of distinguished but like just not just pale maybe green. chilly is a better word yeah for him. yeah yeah <laughs> it's wild to me but and, and I'm wondering why that is particularly with the Sarah Brightman character when she gets to like the 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 Marquis de Sade sequence, it is a it is a massive driving force of the narrative in that sequence. Yes. And leading up to it. She is she is lured by this intense sexual so intense that she can't even be around 
the Marquis de Sade book. No, it's strange because she encounters, like they encounter these scenes one by one when they go into the waxwork. And one person is drawn to the werewolf scenario Mm -hmm. because they think that's cool. Very similar to what horror fans would be like going into a waxwork of this Mm -hmm. caliber. There's like, you know, the mummy scene. People who love that movie will be drawn to that. People Mm -hmm. who love Anne Rice stuff will like either the Marquis de Sade or the vampire scene. Some of them aren't even entirely obvious. Like, Mm -hmm. I wasn't sure what the zombie one was at all. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, where you would be drawn. And she's drawn to who I guess is the Marquis de Sade because we looked it up to see what is the historical representation of the look of the Marquis de Sade. Yeah. Um, It looks like the Dread Pirate Roberts really more than anything. (laughs) I know, right? But the image, he could be Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. He could be, yeah. He's a guy in a powdered wig with a hook nose. Yeah. That's it. Like, he doesn't look like, you know, you can sort of make him look however you want now, I guess, right? So she is transfixed by this. And they all get mildly transfixed by the scenes that they like, and they typically do step over that threshold and get sucked into the scene with so much CGI. But she just stands there, yeah, ready to be snapped out of it. It takes her a bit, though. Uh, she doesn't get drawn into her scene the first time she encounters it. No. No. But Tony does. He does. And there seems to be an interesting scenario situation with certain characters some characters enter it as themselves other people seem to enter these scenarios and embody the character and start delivering lines as if they are that person and knowing exactly why they're there tony doesn't so like he (laughs) and and these scenes are so weird he's talking to himself because he's like Hey, which one of you guys gave me acid? Oh, wait, this must be hypnotism. I must be hypnotized. He's like, who put something in my drink? Wait a second. I don't drink anymore. <laughs> like, uh, like, he forgot about that. Very strange dialogue, though, uh, while he's going through this. Because he goes in and encounters Jonathan Reese davies as a man who's about to turn into a, a werewolf. He doesn't recognize that. We recognize that. And because he's just exhibiting some of the traits. And he also does have a pentagram on a chain around his neck, which I noticed first off, and not only, like, the first time I had watched this was ages ago, um, but I had an idea of what it entailed, because Mm -hmm. we know from the back of the box it's going to have the best werewolf ever in cinematic history, maybe? (laughs) One of them. One of the top, like, three or four werewolves, for sure. But he gets sent out to collect firewood, and he's talking to himself all through that, too. Like it's going to end, like he's going to snap out of it, like someone's going to pull the curtain up and be like haha we got you tony yeah it's very fucking weird the way this one is written kind of pulls you out of it but it is shot and filmed and acted otherwise so brilliantly and believably and i think it hits a point hits a fever pitch so to speak where there's no tony can't pull himself out of this there's no talking to himself left anymore because he does get bit by this werewolf werewolf looks great oh yeah totally little bit like big in the head like if i were using this as a model for another werewolf i just like with modern technologies it would be a little more form-fitting to the actor and it's a classic scenario we've seen this before you have the um the um van helsing type character even the van helsings for dracula but you know what i'm saying yeah he's a werewolf hunter a werewolf hunter comes in with a the gun that is not loaded, even though he knows he's going in there with a werewolf, he's like, now hand me my bullets, young squire. His friend gets ripped in half. Yeah. 
it's not they pull away like it is gory yes and it's specifically gory in the vampire scenario but they they sort of like don't show too too much everything happens very quick in this scene Mm -hmm. uh which is just a taste for things to come but he has these really wonderful silver bullets that are awesome and huge and really like devilish looking really phallic if i dare say these massive silver bullets that glint in the moonlight like it's it's filmed so wonderfully and then we have a transformation sequence because they shoot this werewolf but dana ashbrook's about to turn and it's like a full fucking skin bubbling transmogrification bones popping out and fingernails giving up teeth the whole werewolf thing he gets about half change before he's shot in a very compelling scene again you would not think that you're watching a scene that literally just started happening Mm -hmm. you don't know who any of these characters are because through their actions through the archetypes that they represent um you start filling in the blanks and you start associating it with a thousand movies that have come before it and that moment in which the 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 werewolf hunter says god forgive me and shoots him is powerful it's great and 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 so you really got to give it up to them in these moments and then we see the interesting scenario and i love this pullback yes where you pull back and then you see tony is now part of the exhibit and you're back in the wax museum and anyone could just stroll on by and be like wow that's a really cool werewolf and half werewolf Mm -hmm. display and that's when we know that there's some strange about this here waxwork. This is your first clue. Oh my god! My first one, yeah. Yeah, the the first the first uh, inkling that there's um, a paranormal aspect to this, other than just the host being a little weird. The host being weird, and they've crossed uh, dimensional thresholds. But this gives you an idea what the end goal of that might be mm-hmm. to incorporate real people in exhibits with fake wax figures which is you know i just gotta i just gotta we got some real talk Mm -hmm. spill the tea here you can see all these people breathing and moving i'm like you really can you really really you can see people like swaying and it is not convincing whatsoever no not in one shot not in one never not in one when they're showing one of these wax figures quote unquote do they not they don't even hold their breath and they're swaying. Yeah, the swaying thing is really what gets me because it's like, can't you hold fucking still? Or like, is there not a better take of this? A better take or slow the film down just a little. It'll look kind of creepy and uncanny to us. But that's that's better than this. The breathing. Yeah. Hold your fucking breath. <clears throat> wow. But I mean, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. Because we're not supposed to believe they're not wax. We're, we're proven that they're wax. We're proven that people turn to wax. But whatever, okay? Everyone breathes and wiggles. That's fine, I suppose. The vampire sways a lot. Yeah. It's so bad. <laughs> it looks like he's about to say something. Yeah, he's like... Yeah. Oh, hello. I bet you didn't know that I was a real boy. <laughs> the vampire sequence is really interesting because it could really be interpreted as the Marquis de Sade like sequence when they first start out. It's not until they start slopping grossly slopping their raw meat it this is a scene that should actually turn my stomach just because of my um all the slurping oh yeah and like people putting things in their mouths that i usually don't like watching but i guess it gets a pass because i'm like they're eating cups of blood and raw meat delish so it doesn't really bother me like it usually ought to but it is a very pretty opulent it's lit in that 
massive candelabras, there's cobwebs everywhere, there's dust in the air. And they've done all of that really spot on as far as a vampire film goes. It has a slightly different feel and there's a different tone to the film entirely than the werewolf scene we just saw. And the two things are so very close. Like even the original myths that feed the lore that we take as a vampire or werewolf today are intrinsically linked and as far as what parts of the world, what particular cases of life after death that fed those myths. They are very close. Theatrically, they're very close in our minds. So I can see them looking very similar and similar to the Marquis de Sade, because that sort of all happens at the same time in real history. But they do establish like a different feel. This feels like a vampire movie, except the fucking music. <clears throat> For some fucking reason, the music in this one is is garbage. It's like some weird... I don't know whether if they got this from Combat Shock or what. Like they got like some weird xylophone synth bullcrap playing. Yeah. Why not at least get some harpsichord music? And you would think so because I would say whereas of certain influences, the film that this most closely resembles if we're playing that game is the Hammer Vampire series. Yeah. Like and not just Dracula. Like the like don't look them in the eyes. That's all from Brides of Dracula. Brides of Dracula specifically yeah. is, it's got to be what they're riffing on. Yeah, it has to be because that is such a famous line from that movie. I fucking love that movie. And the women are dressed so wonderfully. And there oh, is yeah. a sexual tension because the head vampire himself, the count, mm-hmm. is, is a count for one, which helps. Uh, he is delicious. No. Oh. If I may say so myself. You may. Yeah. the uh, His son, or whatever, the Viscount, or whatever, that is chasing her around after and coming to her quarters, because she gets sent to her quarters. Like These aren't just like, you're thrust into the third act of a movie, yes. But it's not just like for that little shot, no pun intended, with a, ver- a werewolf sequence. Mm-hmm. But with this, like she goes to dinner, she eats some dinner, she gets sent to her quarters. There's like a whole thing and then she escapes her quarters and then she goes downstairs and encounters her husband and it goes on from there. Yeah. <laughs> I like the area where her husband's being kept. The area where their husband's being kept, the um, the violence in the scene is great. I mean, she looks incredible, just doused in uh, blood and mm-hmm. wine. Yeah. Fucking wild. Have you ever seen something like that before? Someone death by champagne. Death by champagne, like yeah. getting impaled on champagne bottles and then the pan- the corks pop. I mean, there is the fluorescent bulb uh, killing in The Raid, but yeah. that's about the closest that I've ever seen to this. This is a little more campy. Mm. No, like, not, and that isn't, isn't being mean, it just is. But someone's shoved into a rack of wine bottles and all the champagne corks pop through their body. And mm-hmm. they have these jutting, glugging bottles of champagne impaled through their bodies. Okay, I guess it works. That, that takes care of a vampire. One yeah. goes through the heart, so that's what you gotta do. Fucking uh, the Viscount himself gets uh, like the cross on the forehead. And this isn't like... 
you know, like an evil Ed scenario. It's like his head explodes. Yeah, he explodes and there's even more blood all over her dress at this point. Her husband, who's strapped to a table that they had been eating for dinner. That's what was in the cups upstairs. His leg, yeah. His leg is flayed to the bone. And there's a rat gnawing on it and he's screaming in agony. And it's the same shot overhead shot of him screaming every time someone falls on his leg or stabs his leg they just keep it's like a wilhelm scream yeah 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 Yeah. it's awesome and like so even in our description of the scene has been has taken some time to describe and it goes on a little from there Mm -hmm. unreal and the uh costuming in this is on point um i think that there's one person that we really ought to give high fives to is the the wardrobe Mm -hmm. team in this they did really good um this scene though is just beautiful and opulent Mm -hmm. it only gets a little more insane with the marquis de sade scene after but i mean this is two people missing out of their party because once somebody's incorporated into the display in the waxwork they effectively disappear from real life yeah and they're all walking around basically one room (laughs) i know it reminded me of the voodoo exhibit at the Winter Museum a few years ago, and there's a wonderful voodoo exhibit that I really hope tours again because it was wonderful. But you get so sucked into what you're learning and what you're seeing and counting the skulls and wondering which ones are real and knowing they all are. And then you forget you're all in just one big room and you can just poke your head up and see your friends around the next corner. <laughs> but that's what this room would be like if they weren't so sucked in, yeah. quite literally, to these scenes. So now it's down to just two of them. Down to just two of them. And the inevitable questions of like, oh, I guess everyone just went home. Where do they go? It's wild to me how often this happens in horror where people are just like, yeah, I guess. Like, I wouldn't be. I can count on one hand how many times I've been out with a group of people and one person just went home without telling somebody. And usually there's somebody who's within your group or on the fringe that you can say, hey, did you see so-and-so leave? And they say, oh, yeah, I walked so-and-so to their car or whatever. And you can believe them. In this case, we have Hans, a little person that greets everyone at the door saying, oh, no, yes, your friends left. And we're to believe him. They believe him. Doing, yep, that's the explanation. Yep, they must have left because the little guy who's creepy as hell told us and we believe him. Mark kind of believes them because... He's getting a sense that maybe they disappeared because he gets the police involved. He gets the police involved quite rapidly. The next morning, he wakes up, uh, no doubt, after a nice big gigantic cup of milk with mummy and his glass of orange juice. So in his house coat, calls the police after calling all of his friends' houses and being told they went to a waxwork party last night and haven't come home yet. The cop in this movie is so aggressive towards Mark himself and so kind towards the quote unquote the visible adult where he just doesn't believe the kid at all and goes down to the waxwork treats the kid as basically a fucking liar but while he's there notices that some of the wax figures resemble missing persons cases won't admit this to mark no at all and still treats him like an asshole still treats him like a kid blows smoke in his face basically blowing smoke up his ass because he's like a pretty hard-boiled detective is what he's supposed to come across as yeah. i suppose the, the, basically it's like the thing that drives me nuts is like it seems as though writers who were writing for movies that clearly were taking place in california were inspired by 
old cop dramas that they watched ba- that were like based out of like New, New York, New York. Or and so you have like cops like basically acting like hard boiled Manhattan police eating their fucking falafels in the car with styrofoam or and and like tinfoil and shit like that and it's just like meanwhile they're in this very sort of clean pastel backdrop of sunny california and we've seen chips in miami vice we know what california cops are a little more accurately portrayed as yeah and this guy's wearing like like straight up like brown pants white button-up shirt and suspenders yeah and he's just like chain smoking yeah does he have like a little fedora on at one point? He doesn't have he doesn't have the fedora, the Stetson, or anything like that. He's okay. got, um, yeah, no, he's just constantly like he may as well just be wearing like that leather police vest that has like the the like that's almost like a has like holsters on it and shit like that. Like that's what he sounds seems like to me. But the um, the the thing that we need to take away from this is this actually brings out one of my favorite sequences um, because he is obsessed with or at least interested in the mummy exhibit yes and i love this mummy exhibit it looked great the mummy doesn't look totally great which mummy the walking mummy or the laying mummy the, there's two mummies to play with here the, the mummy in the tomb laying mummy which i'm assuming is probably imhotep yeah or, or sorry not imhotep uh, anaxanamun anaxanamun i thought it would be imhotep Im- imhotep would be the one that was walking around oh, okay because that's the he's always trying to get anaxanamun his love that's who he's always trying to resurrect, which he would need the chick for. Because she's the reincarnation of... Anyway. He... And, and they're playing Swan Lake, which I fucking love. Um, I'm pretty sure... One of the listeners might know for sure. I'm pretty sure I should have looked it up. But like the, I know they use it for Bela Lugosi's Dracula. I think they also use it for uh, the uh, Boris Karloff mummy. I can look that up right now. There's so much Tchaikovsky to choose from. And that's why I'm surprised they didn't even go for some um, other music with the the vampire scene. Because it was just so bad. Mm-hmm. But there is, there's many movements to choose from with Swan Lake. They, it could be used in any film. 1932. Yep. Let me just see. It was previously used in the same arrangement. I do it like that. Find and paint. It was used in Dracula, Murders in the Rue, Morgue, and Secret of the Blue Room. So yes, just looking up, thank you, Wikipedia, it was used the same arrangement at that, too, which is crazy to me because there's so much to choose from. Uh, Dracula, Murders in the Rue, Morgue, and Secret of the Blue Room, all within, like, 3233. Hmm. Um, you have a good ear, Mr. Knipe. Thank you. Um, so it's, it's very interesting to me, and I think that... Um, um, this sequence kind of makes it wonders like what what would that scenario look like if the mummy wins that fight? Yeah, and I was like, oh, it would look like this. And again, they're doing the the the, the old wizened tomb raider trying to like take out the mummy, and you have like the damsel in distress, and you have him as like the sort of swashbuckling adventurer, um, hired gun type character, and the mummy like and. And I was going to say, um, The Mummy, ironically, looks better to me in uh, Monster Squad. Yeah. I, I love the, the the way that mummy looks. It's very decrepit. It's very much like the Karis mummy. 
Um, is that, it Tales from the Dark Side where they have the mummy story? They do. That mummy looks yeah, great, too. That's my favorite mummy on screen, hands down. Yeah, that mummy also is really fantastic. Um, I forgot about that. Oh, best mummy. <clears throat> and uh, and this one looks okay. Yeah. It's just like... It looks a little too slimy. It looks a little too slimy, and it looks a little too... Um, carnival ride to me like it's very i like when you get shot though because yeah. the dust plumes that plume out look pretty mm. accurate to me yeah yeah have you seen a mummy in real life gone to the museum seen a mummy yes i have uh, seen a mummy in real yeah life. you can imagine shooting them can't you you could i always like think that they look very light i'm yeah. always imagining i was like could i break this thing in half oh probably yeah probably oh yeah completely you could probably like if you put your hand right through it probably yeah, yeah. just even me with my little tiny Tyrannosaurus Rex arms. <laughs> um, but that all being said, his partner is going to go immediately looking for him. And he's going to get manhandled and his neck's going to be broken. So we got bodies just piling up in this place. Exactly. What is the end goal of this fucking waxwork museum? What are they trying to accomplish? Well, the answers lie in our main character, Mark's attic of course because his grandfather was the guy who was shown at the beginning no context whatsoever here so even me i've seen this this is like the third time i've seen this fourth time fourth time i've seen this i totally like was like why the hell does his grandfather have pictures of this guy in his attic like it didn't make any sense to me um because the opening scene of this is a man being robbed and killed and burnt alive in his living room and they don't really allude to why or how or the wherefore of all this until this point where all of this converges. Mm-hmm. The owner of the waxwork knew Mark's grandfather. Killed him even. Killed him, you say? Killed him. Murder most foul. You sound just like the neighbor who also knew Mark's grandfather. He's in a wheelchair now. And just to let you know that... Um, Mark's grandfather like has a Ouija board, so you know that he's into like the occult. Yeah. And just so you know that this uh, the neighbor was also a, a, a swashbuckling adventurer. He's still uh, like a, on his wheelchair. He has his like gray um, explorer's hat, like he's like fucking Professor Livingston or whatever. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and he's swashbuckling through the Amazon. Exactly, but with his machete. Like, he's Doc Savage, just, like, fucking bare-chested and shit. That's probably how he ended up in a wheelchair. Probably. Yeah. That's what Adventures. Happened. Yes. Adventures. But I didn't look, and I stopped looking, and I should have kept looking for pentagrams, pentacles, sigils through this whole thing. Uh, a star in a circle, upside down or upside right. There's an upside right one here and there, an upside right one on the uh, werewolf, upside down one in the vampire sequence. I, I'm curious now, looking around this place... Or the grandfather's attic, if there's another, because I totally stopped looking for them by accident. Yeah. I fucked up. <clears throat> but yeah, this guy, this neighbor, this is where this movie, like, they, I guess they woke up one day and realized, oh shit, we didn't like really write anything for our Scooby-Doo gang to do or say, or the reason why they're there or where this is all going. So we better start writing that now. And it's the whole, you killed my grandfather, so now I'm the guy that's going to kill you or whatever. Deeper than that, though, voodoo, Wes. Voodoo, you say? Voodoo. It's the voodoo end of the world plan. If you are looking for another voodoo movie. Yeah, this waxwork. one, Tangentially. Tangentially is about voodoo. There is an old dusty book lids that'll tell you about the voodoo apocalypse in which there's 18 historically evil characters 18 
divide it up six ways, six, six, six. Yeah. Say. I know, right? Secret Satan. Iron Maiden taught me that. Yeah. Um, and that is what they're doing. Every time somebody looks at these places, these vignettes, these um, exhibits, they enter the exhibits. If they believe in the exhibits and they die within the exhibits, their soul is trapped there forever and is fodder to bring back the soul of this monster. And that's what they want to do. And if you, why would they want to destroy the world? Well, someone had to destroy the world, so it may as well be him. That's really what they say. I, yeah, that is that is verbatim. Someone had to. Yeah, this is verbatim what they say. And again, it's all first draft. It's all just we don't really care. What we wanted to do was make a movie with as many monsters and classic horror scenarios as we possibly can. And however we stick that together, they just don't really care. It's the pizza delivery boy wraparound of the porno. Yeah. That's really what what the story is. It is about as thick as the plot of a porno. Really seriously. And man, at the end of the order, some extra sausage. (laughs) Yeah, they really do. It almost rivals, you know... Like Cabin in the Woods that we've mentioned or Night at the Museum, where everything just kind of goes pandemonium by the end. I mean, we, we have a little bit of this intrigue going on here now where they know what's going on. They know that they can be sucked into these things. We know that our girl has a weakness for Marquis de Sade. Not only was she transfixed in front of his waxwork exhibit when they were in the, the grandfather's, I keep saying the grandfather's attic. It's Mark's mom's mansion's attic where the grandfather's stuff is kept. His Ouija board and, and his, his Marquis de Sade. He's a Marquis de Sade book that emanates a mysterious glow and whispers in the wind when she's opening she it. she clutches her breast. Oh, this... It's like in Dracula, and Coppola's Dracula, when they bend the edge of the book and it's the Kama Sutra and you can see oh. penis and vagina action. That's how she's like, whoa, reading this Marquis de Sade book. And when it closes, the spell is broken. So there's like definite power in just mentioning the Marquis de Sade to this girl. They go to try to destroy this shit. And this is how you know they have like no fucking money for this movie. Because... They fucking show up with like a, a like a brown paper bag full of Zippo lighter fluid. Yeah, that's what they're gonna burn the, down the waxworks with. This is fucked up. Just go to a garage, ask for a gas can from fucking anybody. Say you'll bring it back. Yep. Like, they took a cab there. They could have told the cabbie we ran out of gas. Yeah. There. Alibi. And he's or whatever. And so as Mark's trying to burn this place down. They're supposed to burn down the exhibits that don't have a mm-hmm. person sucked into them yet. So it's any exhibit that typically has like one figure in it. Yeah. Yeah. Like the zombie one. Or no, the zombie one has someone because some of their friends went looking for them too. So they've got extra people yeah. sucked in. But the Marquis de Sade doesn't have anyone to play with. Oh, it's going to have Sarah. Sarah Brightman too. And I, I noticed that the character was named Sarah Brightman in the scene with the guy in the wheelchair. And I was wondering if that had anything to do with the fact that at the time of this movie, Sarah Brightman very famously was playing Christine in Andrew Lloyd Webber's Broadway production of Phantom of the Opera. Phantom of the Opera is a character in this. They don't do anything with him. There's not a dedicated vignette to him, but he is 
there and one of the friends do succumb to the Phantom of the Opera. And they do this, I think, only twice with the snares instead of pulling us in with them, so to speak, having us break that fourth wall with them and see the scenario they see before their demise. The person gets pulled in and then pop, they show up in this exhibit and that's it. When Sarah Brightman enters the Marquis de Sade, she is brought to this chamber lit, and the prince is there, and the Marquis, uh, or fucking uh, Marquis de Sade is there, or whatever. And the prince actually is played by Anthony Hiscox, the yeah. uh, writer and director of this film. And there's concubines everywhere. Oh and, my god! And uh, Sarah is comes in with this powdered wig. She looks adorable, mm-hmm. and they're going to break this they're, filly. They're going to break this filly, mm-hmm. and then. She is going to get fucked relentlessly by the prince and all of his concubines like the whore she is. And then he is going to whip her again. And she is into it. She is so fucking enamored with this. And this gives way to a sequence in which what ends up happening is, and I'm wondering if this would be the same scenario no matter who goes into this, but what happens is, is she is so horny and she is so full of sexual energy. It's like that sequence in uh, Barbarella, the the movie, mm-hmm. where they put Barbarella in that sex machine and she basically is so horny that she breaks the machine because she's more horny than the machine can keep up with. It's almost like, them playing chess against Big Blue, but with orgasms. Yeah. And like, that happens here where they can't break her because she loves to get whipped so much that, and they're all like sweating and exhausted and they can't keep whipping her. And so the prince is like, we'll fucking kill her then. And we'll have sex with somebody else. Yeah, because their arms are getting tired. Yeah, or whatever. You get to see what the end game of that scenario would be because somebody else kind of trips into that later on, and poof, they are just up on a Saint Andrew's cross and dead. And that's the end game, I guess. If you don't have so much FFF energy as Sarah, because yeah. And she isn't just taking it and whimpering. It's it's not like claiming a Sleeping Beauty where she just sort of whimpers her way to ecstasy she is begging for more yeah she is she is positively glowing yeah it's wonderful stuff um so the marquis de sade is getting tired of all this meanwhile mark has figured out that she's tripped and fell into this scenario and he's also figured out the secret as to how to escape these things Mm because he's one of those rare people who can go into these scenarios and he's not in full costume no yeah He's still in just as like beige slacks and pop collar and like normal belt and his loafers. Yeah, his Lacoste shirt and shit mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. Um, everyone has hard soled shoes in this. Mm-hmm. So like when they walk around the museum, it's just really loud. Yeah, it's true. Um, he gets into a Night of the Living Dead scenario. It's not Night of the Living Dead, though. It's nutty zombies from hell. Yeah. Yeah. Eh, it's essentially not a living dead. It's all in black and white. There's Dutch tilts everywhere. He's getting chased by zombies. And he basically berates the zombies and says, you're not real. Like, you're not my real dad. <laughs> Fuck you. But it works. He's allowed to pass that threshold. Because you remember where he entered the scenario. <clears throat> he remembers where he entered the scenario. And then when he enters the Marquis de Sade uh, scenario to get Sarah, he basically has to, like, convince her that this place isn't real and has no power over him. 
And it's demonstrated by the fact that like the Marquis de Sade can't hurt him. He passes right through it. And oh, she has like third rate Stockholm syndrome. Oh going my god, on. she's clutching the leg of the Marquis de Sade. She's like massaging his thigh and yeah. like I don't want to leave. And and he has this line about how do you feel that your girlfriend like reached her first orgasm at the end of a whip, a whip, and not at your touch. Um, which is funny because they're like not dating, so ha ha. They're not dating because he wanted to kiss her earlier in the film and she didn't want to because she said she was looking for something else. She was looking for the Marquis de Sade. She was, yeah. that's it. She, she didn't even know it. She looked at oh, this she, knew she looked at this guy, who by the way was interested in another woman all up up, up until that moment, and she just saw like a an a a, a grim future of vanilla sex and she just couldn't and she has a few lines where you get kind of you might get you might double think this where she's like uh he's like uh, why would i date that girl because it's kind of like wanting something you'll never have and she's like don't i know it <laughs> and you would think she's talking about him or another man but now she's talking about getting tied up <clears throat> she get tied up and whipped and it's like no one will give her the nasty kinky sex that she wants someone out there will well, she's all stuck in this um, hoity-toity lifestyle, right? So I yeah, but that's where that. I feel like the people are the most depraved. It's like if you want to find a pervert, find someone who's like religious. Yeah, very true. But very, like, very true. Um, she could have, she should have went to Bible camp. She should have went to Bible camp. Um, so she gets rescued by Mark, our intrepid believer in all things fictional. Yeah, and he basically breaks this uh, this spell by convincing her that. It's not real, and they leave. And I guess there's nothing that anyone in the waxwork can do. They've they've broken the spell, except, oh, no, wait, there's two more random characters that are just going to instantly fall into these death traps. Which I think is hilarious, because they're like, yay, we foiled their plan. We're the last two. There's two more scenarios that don't have our bodies in them. We win. And they immediately get hands clapped over their mouth, dragged into a corner, while their two friends get pulled into these scenarios immediately, mm-hmm. which is hilarious. So then... It's night at the museum. Everyone's waking up. It is night at the museum. And they're like, what do they do? Because it's not even like the 18 monsters that have come to life. And you have Jack the Ripper and the Marquis de Sade and, and basically Dracula, the mummy, the wolfman, zombies, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Audrey too, like all of these things. But all of their victims are also now evil even people who were chasing them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And with the vampires, it's like all the vampires. Yeah. Yeah. So, I guess they're screwed. I guess the best thing, like you mentioning Audrey, um, not a real threat, you know? Yeah. Yeah, not a real threat. Except, like, for people g- gathering others up to feed to this carnivorous plant there's a few other things that i can't quite place and something that is meant to be the fly i suppose with almost like a vagina dentata on its face mm-hmm. or something like some very strange looking creatures which likens it a lot to cabin at the wood cabin in the woods with just so many monsters that are so much like cabin in the woods where a lot of these monsters are just likenesses of things that we recognize yeah, it's it's all suggestion. It's all innuendo for at least characters that they were scared of getting the licenses for or getting too accurate. I mean, like you can't as long as you don't call him Dracula, you can't stop someone from making a vampire, but yeah. um, or a werewolf or a mummy. But um, well, they're gonna get saved 
By the Van Helsing Society. But basically, yeah, the guy in the wheelchair down the road that knew the grandfather knows a network of other Van Helsings, basically. Basically an army of old, out-of-shape British dudes. Yeah, and there's a lot of British dudes in this uh, corner of California for whatever reason, and this must be that reason, Wes. Yeah, even Mark's butler. Yeah, which is fantastic. I think, although he doesn't make it out alive. No, but like, like I don't really think any of them do. Um, and then comes basically it's a war, and holy fuck, is this overstimulating? It happens so fast, and the things I can liken it to, of course, like I've said a million times already, Cabin in the Woods, Night at the Museum, something like that, and reminds me vaguely of the end of dead alive where there's just so much happening but they cut things way too quickly it is amateur hour at the waxwork right here because you're seeing things uh, weapons are popping into people's hands with no context holy fuck like the magic bag like reach off camera reach back in camera and you have a gun yeah there's literally the the owner of the wax museum literally reaches up into the ceiling and pulls down like what looks like a fucking aerosol gun that's been painted red smash cut to a guy with a spear through his chest smash cut to like it's, it's some all, lady cowering in the corner it's smash all cut fucking like ron burgundy's like the battle of all the news anchors and shit like that that's what it, yeah because i even halfway through said i killed a guy with a trident because <laughs> there might as well be someone riding a bear and a man on fire because yeah. that is how well even that's done a lot better on screen because it's supposed to be comedic this isn't supposed to be comedic but it is because it's just so Mm -hmm. badly done so badly done and i think if this movie was just a little bit worse it would have reached the status of cult classic but i don't believe it really hits there does it you you know cults i do um would you say is this have you ever heard this referred to as a cult classic i've never heard a single person mention this movie aside from Maybe your husband? Yeah. Like, and Vestron, uh, who owns the rights to this, released on Vestron Video. They were doing, the, they were doing like basically a Blu-ray release. They Vestron has released a few films. The Wishmaster series, they mm-hmm. did a big kick-ass release of. Uh, Night of Living, or Return of the Living Dead 3, they've done. And they've done this and stuff like that. So you can get like a glossy version of this film if you so choose. Find Vestron to be a little expensive for not really getting that much quality. But um, I've never heard like this highly. This is like, like, certainly, I've never heard anyone say this is like a highly regarded film. I think people would probably, like, again, I don't dislike this movie, but oh, in terms so of fun. like, in terms of like cult, small cult. Yeah, super small, if, there, if one exists whatsoever. It's strange to me because, yeah, it's almost hitting that level of absurdity. Almost. On the other hand, it does have some exemplary acting. Like, it's got some very wonderful scenes in it and really good acting from some of the scenario actors. It seems like a film that's ambition was far greater than their resources and budget. Mm -hmm. They tried to do what they could, but that end of the film is just such a clusterfuck and i think a lot more could have been accomplished if they had just pared it down a little bit um or like made it more like a house because it is very like house is definitely like a sort of fun house of opening doors and like scooby-doo villains come out of it and shit like that where um 
this film is just the the last sequence, and it's hard to really put it up. You're like, it's not gory. The action sequences aren't very compelling or interesting or good. Yeah. Um, and everything's done so fast. It's just a clusterfuck. It is, and considering we're up against some really cool. Uh, people's people getting their head torn apart, people exploding like a bag of blood, mm-hmm. and the the skin, the skin flayed off that guy's bone is really like the centerpiece of all of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a, we know they're capable of it. Mm-hmm. Did they run out of budget? Were they running out of film? Like they're running out of fucking something. Yeah. At this point, but we do get a final confrontation of the waxwork owner and Mark, who has foiled his plan. Fuck, this whole sequence is right out of, like, a fucking 1960s James Bond movie. Down to and including the, like, sound effects of bullets hitting the walls and shit like that. Yeah. yeah. Like, it's just an old man with a gun on a ledge, like, <laughs> threatening them, like, it's, it's like, you may have followed my plans, but this is what I'm going to do. And I was like, Jesus Christ, where's Roger Moore? Like, Fuck. And then he plunges into the vat. That's of the wax. other thing. He plunges into a fu- into the wax, and then he comes out, does a one liner, and sinks. And back it's below a bad it. one liner. Yeah, it doesn't make any conceivable sense. No, it doesn't. It's garbled to words. Um, it's ba- he basically pops up and says, "I told you so," and then goes under and dies in the wax, I suppose. Or like, would you like to take a closer look or something? Yeah, that's the what he says. says. Like it's weird. Which is- and then and then his wheelchair buddy who, like, shoots that dude, just gets his head ripped off by the werewolf. Yeah. Yeah. And he says, what, oh, goodness gracious, before he dies? Or, oh, goodness? Yeah, he's like, oh, good, oh, go- oh goodness gracious. And, like, or, like, oh, dear. And he gets his head ripped off. And, again, like, this is, like, after this guy shows up and he's got, like, like military armor, like, fatigues over his wheelchair now and he's, like, tossing Mark it's a fucking a battle. rapier. Yeah, it's a battle wheelchair. Yeah, it's a battle wheelchair. Yeah. And I'm just, like, what is fucking happening? It's buck wild to me. Ambitious, not entirely unenjoyable though. But I think that like any any sort of like homage to horror goes right out the fucking window. Unfortunately, because <clears throat> if they would have just you know cut out that whole battle scene in the Van Helsing Society, whoever the hell those guys are, yeah. to you know they escape the final scenario. Oh no, their two friends get. So- well, even have them escape the final scenario and the plan be foiled, like, and the guy try the and corner them. Yeah. yeah, something like that. You know, like, it or, works. Yeah, like like as they're resurrecting, like you burn it before they fully come to life or some shit like that. But like, why? Like that would have been cool seeing all these heroes mm-hmm. of ours burning. Yeah, because while this huge clusterfuck of a battle is happening, I can't even really tell who's supposed to be a wax figure and who's part of these like old man Van Helsing's because the wax figures include like old man Van Helsing's Helsings and axe murderers and and like some guys like burning the place down I'm like is that a good guy or a bad guy burning the place down who's getting set on fire are those good guys or bad guys that are getting set on fire it's impossible to tell yeah Uh, maybe that is the overarching message here Wes who are the bad guys the Marquis de Sade because if the people who believe in libertine sexuality are evil. They're evil, even if they are excellent swordsmen, because this yeah. goes into sort of a Count of Monte Cristo. Like the Dread Pirate Roberts was like, yeah. I'm Inigo Montoya. Yeah. And, but, and like, it definitely is like that idea of, 
you're having a sword fight against someone who knows how to use a sword versus a person who literally just had a rapier tossed to them. Yeah. And it's like, I'm not a sword fighter. Well, he's all, he's very rich. He probably does know how to sword fight. Like, maybe he took fencing yes. cla- lessons or something Forced like Forced to take fencing. Yeah. By because a mummy. It, like, while screaming, I need Kevin! Oh, the opening sequence is worth it. If you're not in it for all of the horror stuff, like, we know you are. At least watch it for that very Lynchian intro. Uh, not the pre-intro with the guy burning, but Mark at home for breakfast with Mumsy. It's a fucking freak show. It is a freak show. But first, coffee talk. Coffee talk. Coffee talk with Wes and Lydia. I saw the grudge. Oh, oh, oh. And was it enjoyable? I know you were building up to it. I'm very excited always when they want to do anything with that franchise. And I'm not cynical about it. You know, like, I know people have problems with rings. I haven't seen it yet. There's no Sadako versus Kayako. No, it's not. Very few things are. Even though, like, that like movie, like, fucks with things a little bit. Because it's like, the, the curse takes two days and not seven days. The curse is short, <clears throat> and I had no idea that the seaside was that close to the house in the garage. Yeah, but it's like, a, it's almost like a, an Elm Street... Camp Crystal Lake scenario where it's just for the convenience of narrative. Yeah. But it's just like, where's that well that Sadako d- uh, drowned out? Ah, oh, it's right over there. Yeah. Don't, don't worry about it. <laughs> but um, this film, The Grudge, the things that I will praise it for, it's fucking violent. Oh, yeah? Like, holy shit. It's violent and it's gross. Like, it's gross about it. Like, if you have a problem with, like, maggots and rot and filth... Not a problem at all. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there's one scene where somebody basically, through impact alone, explodes like a hefty bag full of meat. It's, <laughs> it's pretty, pretty heinous and also, like, fucking dark. Like, there is, there is um, like like a domestic attack involving a pregnant woman in scissors. Okay, nice. Like they really There's never enough of that. Not since inside. Not since inside and I never saw the remake of Inside, but I did listen to the Faculty of Horror um, talk about that over the Christmas season. Um but yeah, pregnant women's scissors. That's yeah. one of my favorite things and and you're saying maggots, people exploding like a hefty bag of guts. Mm-hmm. My problem with the film mm-hmm. begins and ends with no, Kayako. What? Kayako is in it yeah. for less than a minute. Oh, that's... Well, okay. And it's the... Because it's not a remake. It's... It's a whole fresh take. Is it like a, a <clears throat> Halloween retelling it's, Yeah, sort it's of a thing? sequel. It's yeah. a, literally a sequel. It takes place in 2004 with the first Sarah Michelle Gellar remake. Yeah, yeah. It takes place in 2006, and then it takes place in 2008. So there's converging storylines. So it's very similar to the original, in which it's... And I've heard some complaints that that's difficult to follow. That is not difficult to follow. That is easy to follow. They make it very simple... It's not like Juan where you you really have to But is it one of the like I find hard to follow when we were young was Memento, where you sort of had to watch it over again in a way. Um if you were high, which a lot of people were, 
Yeah. Or nowadays I find like hard to follow, quote unquote, equates to I looked down at my phone. Yeah, you're like watching it. I fell into a K-hole on Twitter and then yeah. and now I, I don't remember where I am because the scenario changed or it's dark and it was light a minute ago. Now I'm totally lost. Yeah, I was like, I was looking at my phone. I was posting about watching this movie on Twitter um, and looking at TikToks. Yeah. And when I looked up, who are these characters and whatever. No, yeah, like there's a lot of that. Okay, okay. But like... If you're paying attention, it's not that hard to follow. I don't know. And and they even put like the fucking dates. I was going right. to say are there title screens because oh, yeah. yeah. And then and then once they do that you're like okay, this is the family that lives in the house in 2006. We know this. Um and then the next time you see those characters you're like okay, I know where we are. It's the same house though? Yes. Okay. Good. So they did that, right? It's the same house. The thing that's weird about it, and I don't know if this is much of a spoiler, like the thing that's weird about it is Somebody enters the house in Japan and the grudge carries over when she comes home to the United States. So it basically she crosses the threshold of the house in Japan and then makes it all the way back to the United States. And then the grudge kills her and her family then. But then her and her family become the primary ghosts you see enacting the grudge or now, the way i would uh, do that as um and this is a stretch is like she had a glass of water in japan and yeah. hadn't peed it all out yeah until she got to the u.s i'm assuming it's the u.s where mm-hmm. she, yeah okay um that's cool i'm fine with transference i just find it weird the thing that was sticking in my brain one if it's not kayako to be fair, they've done grudge movies in Japan that don't involve that family. Yeah. Like, uh, was it White and Black or or like Juan White or whatever? It wasn't Kayako and that. But the thing that kind of like, where I was just like, if this is a sequel and you're kind of hinging on the franchise and you're calling it the grudge, I feel like the audience has expectations of like, well, where's Toshio? Where's Kayako? Like, you can get away with maybe not doing the dad because like, the dad is kind of nebulous to people. It's true. And is there even <clears throat> is there even a child crouching in a closet? There is a child. Okay. But the role of Toshio, again, because this family... So the, the, the grudge, we know, there's two ways that the grudge happens in which either they're, they're sort of nebulously killed by Kayako herself. Like yeah. they crawl on her or Toshio and then they vanish or... They just get mutilated or whatever. Mutilation typically is by the the husband ghost, which you never see, because he's the one that did the physicality of the killing. Or the people just physically repeat the crime. So you see a husband killing a wife, killing children, that type of stuff. So we've seen that all before, but never has the grudge manifested differently. So, like, for example... In, even in this movie, mm-hmm. there are people that reenact the domestic violence of it and commit murders while possessed by the grudge and then kill themselves. That happens in this film. But like then you don't see their ghosts later. It's it's yeah. all still the original family. So my question is, why? what was specific about this new family that made them manifest as something other than Kayako and Toshio and that type of stuff? Like... 
Is it because it's the same? It was like a mom, dad, and a kid. Is it because it's that specific? And were they not just killed off due to the misfortune of having this manifestation? And it wasn't something like that had been boiling under the surface, like the original family. No, it was. It, it seemed they seemed like a happy family. Yeah. Because the woman crossed the threshold of the house. Yeah, that's, that's it. Like normal. Yeah. That's how it's the, normally yeah. manifested. But now they've they've usurped. That that family's like they're a grudge, not the grudge. Now they're a grudge. Yes. Okay. Yeah, they've become a new grudge. But the the croaking, there's still a death involving of the bathtub. So there is a combination. Of, but there's no like combination of household pet and child. It's just well, this kid died via drowning. So water features heavily in the way that her spirit manifests. And now, stuff. from your point of view. Would you say that this does a very good job of carrying that mantle? Or is it a case of broken telephone where the parts and elements are present yet executed in with a, with a, something lost in the translation? If I were to take my own personal bias of Kayako out of it, like I want it, I want yeah. her and I want Toshio. That that's expectation. What I want. And yeah, so same if, here. If I were to divorce myself from that expectation, I think that this movie perfectly encapsulates what the grudge was, particularly the relentlessness. Okay. It is just relentless. There is no moment in which you are not seeing spirits. There is no moment in which people are not being stalked. And there's a massive body count. Nice. And I'm just reminding myself now that you had mentioned it's extremely gory. It's extremely gory. Like they go for that R rating. Like, They're like, this is a fucking R-rated movie. Okay. So, like, and it's also modern without it being gross. You know what I'm saying? Like, it doesn't seem, every relationship seems very natural. Everything seems very now and timely, even though we're talking about some murders that have occurred at this point narratively over a decade ago. But, like... I think that if you wanted to get the idea of what the grudge movies were like without the iconic monster, yeah, this movie does that. And and like even though, like I don't mind telling people like the one of the scaredest I ever was in the movie theaters ever was seeing the original Grudge remake. I just never seen I'd never seen a ghost movie like that before. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, that's I worked with a, a guy that was scared to hell by the grudge it was so it was so scary to me because i had never seen a movie that broke the rules like that i'd seen fucking 50 different haunted house films in my life but i had never seen one that was like oh it's daytime on the bus or they're in a restaurant there you're not going to see anything so i relax and then something happens or like they're around people who aren't even involved in this so that's not going to happen and shit happens like and 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 kayako just bent the laws of time and space and physics yeah and and, and so, i know how you feel about uh, the discombobulated bodies yeah exactly so and she's and, the queen of that and and this was the one of the first times i'd ever seen that herky-jerky stuff mm-hmm. so like i was sca- like hair standing on it was so scary to me and i was embarrassed that i was so scared of this movie this time obviously I'm, I'm older. Oh, yeah. Wiser. You've seen 7,000 grudge movies. Now. Exactly. I've seen every grudge movie that they've released, and I've seen every, or at least most, copycat um, grudge and ring movies, too, because I love them. I love well, them. yeah, and I mean, that's where we get 
sort of the stretchy face ghost uh, plague. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so, like, no, I wasn't feeling anxious. I wasn't really feeling scared. However, when I left the movie theater, you know, I said to my girlfriend, I was just like, that really, I really didn't like that Kayako wasn't, wasn't in it, but it's very much a grudge movie. Like, like they managed to make a grudge movie, including all of the elements that I would expect to be in a grudge movie. And they even incorporated stuff from the Japanese version that's not in any of the remakes. Good, good. So, like, you really get a competent, very violent mixture of the East and West interpretations of that film. So, I think it's very good. Yeah. But the big but is it just seemed like a good cover song. Ah. Like, it just seemed like... And I know I'm just like, well, you just want her. Uh, yeah, I just want her in it. And because she's not Partially, in it. Partially, but yeah, I mean, I'll see it now. I mean, I wasn't that interested in seeing it until now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what you've what you've positioned is that it could be just another really good newer horror film, which I'm always keeping my eye out for. Agreed. That isn't a goddamn... Well, like, I have to see it to s- decide how much of a fucking music video is it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, but I think like it's worth your time. Oh, sounds it. Oh and, my god, totally sounds it. And and um I think that like like it just um it does a really good job and it's a solid it's a solid horror movie like yeah. like spe- like for a January release and stuff like that. I just um yeah, I'm 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 just aren't we not really kind of getting into the dead zone of uh theater, let alone the dead zone of horror. Well, January is usually a, like a good dump month for yeah. horror. Be, so like like for example every Friday this month there's a horror release mm-hmm. um, la- this weekend is underwater which I would have loved to have seen but I, can't. I saw your note about that and that um, I like Kristen Stewart I yeah. do and I'm very interested to see this I haven't watched any trailers or anything like that I barely knew this movie was coming yeah barely knew it was coming and then all of a sudden I was like, saw Kristen Stewart. She looked like a badass. She had her head shaved. I was like, what's this? Yeah. And then I watched the trailer, and I was like, holy fuck! It's like where'd this like sci-fi horror Kristen Stewart in an underwater lab fighting sea monsters? Where was where was this? I look it up. The movie was fucking filmed in 2017, and like, it's just sat. A lot of stuff's experiencing these really long pushbacks, and I'm not sure why. And I I, I hope that it's not that people are so overwrought with public uh, perception and what's going to be voted up and down. Why can't they just pull a Cloverfield thing and be like, oh yeah, here's the trailer for this movie that we're surprising you with the title of and that is out tomorrow. This is like the thing that I don't understand where like Underwater feels like a movie that probably should have just circumvented the theaters and just went to Netflix or something like that where it would have found its audience. Because right now, me as a person who's actively wanting to go and see this movie, I have to sit on a bus for 90 minutes to go and see it if I want to go see it. And I'm like, I want to see this movie. I already know I want to see this movie. What fucking chance does this movie have if, like, the general audience which like, you know, oh, what's this? Oh, Kristen Stewart, I like her. Yeah, well, let's check this out. You know, like that sort of like getting people in the door, it, it, it's, it's a lot harder when there's a less doors to walk through. Yeah. So, like, I, I just felt really frustrated by the whole experience. Well, what's, what's monopolizing the fucking theaters right now? That's the thing, right? And, yeah. And, you know, my friend informing me about, like, the, which was weird because, like, again, this is a Fox... 
This is a 20th Century Fox film, which again, this tells me that when Fox made all of these movies to get released, yeah, like like the reason why people are like that. Uh, speaking of superhero movies, that uh, the the horror tinted New Mutants movie, yeah, which is um, like. Uh, that got pushed back. That also got made in like 2016, 2017. Got pushed back like three, four times. And it's so ridiculous because you look at all the actors in it and they were like teens and now you know, like I know what Macy Williams looks like now. Yeah. She is like aged out of this fucking character and I was like, this is ridiculous to me. But again, like these are all these leftover things that are still under the Fox banner and so it was just like they didn't know what to do with it. So again, ironically, Underwater, a film now technically owned by Disney, yeah, can't get theater distribution because it's clogged up by these massive, like, $100, 300000000 million Disney movies that, like, they need six fucking theaters for. I'm just like, can't you just one? Yeah. Like, we're, like I don't... Limit the doors on those movies. They'll play for six months yeah. if you really want to do it that way. Yeah. They will play. Like, like stretch out their time laterally. <laughs> This is just like when, and again, this is turning into one of those movies, which is getting a lot of praise. And that's just still all Fox. So what about other movies that deserve theater time and would work well with that sort of buzz? Yeah. And and it's like, this movie's gotten great reviews. It looks great. They spent $80 million on it. It's not like it's like a fucking micro budget thing. Movie of the week. It's not a movie of the week. It's not a Hallmark. So what, exactly. So what they're going to do is the movie is going to get released and they're going to be like, it's going to do almost no business. Mm-hmm. And then they're going to be like, see, audiences don't want to go see this. And then it's just like, no, if you give this movie a fucking chance, this movie doesn't have a chance. Like you, people wonder why like modern horror suffers so fucking much and why nothing seems to feel classic. Nothing seems to like permeate the subconsciousness except for like maybe one film a year, two films a year tops. And and it's because nobody is given a shot. And, and No, and I'm all for concurrent releasing. And I really wish that they would embrace this fully and not feel that they're going to be shooting themselves in the foot because they're going to yeah. be doing the opposite. And I don't understand why this math doesn't work. Uh, something like Joker, something like Underwater. Release it on whatever your platform is going to be, Disney+, Plus, uh, fucking Netflix, Apple, whatever it is that you're choosing to release it on digitally six to eight months later for whatever dumb reason, release it in theaters and online at the same time. Yeah. This is just like what happened last year with Crawl. This is just what mm-hmm. happened last year with like, uh, what was it, 47 meters down or 48 meters down or whatever, that shark movie. The second one, yeah. I really enjoyed the, the first one of that too. Yeah, like, so like... You have all these horror movies that were getting really good buzz and are horror movies that you don't see all the time. Yeah. And and, and it's just like, oh, my God. And, like, the thing that endeared Kristen Stewart to me forever was when she was doing an interview for this movie and she was just like, this isn't a movie about fucking, like, some girl who's, like, got to get back to the surface because my son's up there. She's got nothing. She's got fucking mm. nothing. It's just her. And she wants to live anyways. And I'm like, thank you. I, like, all I yeah. want is a horror movie that's not about a, like... Like, if horror movies could stop being written by, like, fucking sad moms and dads yeah. that are just like, I don't know how to relate to anything anymore because because I have a child now and, like, all I can think about is wanting to protect my children and that's the real horror. I was just like, what about the rest of us that aren't fucking breeders that, like, have, like, this speaks nothing to it. I don't want to see 
the dynamic of a family breakdown. I just or the wanna... rare breeder that's tired of seeing that too. Yeah, yeah. I'm. I've always hated that. Always because it takes the strips the worth entirely out of you as a gender entirely. Yeah, like it Christmas... boils you down to nothing but a fucking replicant. Yeah, and and like and but the Kristen Stewart's like, no, my character wants to live because she wants to live. Yeah, and I was like, cool, me too. It's one thing. Like, a lot of books and stuff and I've <clears throat> been reading a lot of like catching up on horror things that people told me I should read all these years and me being a contrarian I suppose or whatever anti-hipster I hadn't read them so catching up on like things like Brian Keene and mm-hmm. other authors but that's the first thing I, I crash up against is like all these really great stories that aren't like the road or something that have to do with a, a guy is separated from his son who he was separated from before paying alimony for and he has to go and rescue the kid or whatever like yeah. i'm really tired of that women being boiled down to nothing but a mom yeah and and like honestly i think that like this explosion in like love for like ya stories is because it's a backlash to the fact that like if you don't it's harder to find regular stories about adults that aren't just about them being parents and having to protect children, yeah. find children, etc. YA novels are all just about like, here's like a, a fucking like individual. And a lot of them is stripping a lot of the sex out of it. That's, That's why I really thing. do enjoy a lot of YA properties because they're asexual by and large. That's why my girlfriend likes YA stories because she she like she's like, I'm just sick of reading a story because she loves to read. She's a she's a big like uh bookworm and so she's like YA books just are like gender neutral there's no fucking sex like and and she's like I don't have to worry about relationships there's tangentially relationships and if I feel like it I can mentally do the gymnastics and wonder what it would be like if these characters get together but the primary focus of the story is is world building adventure and like shit like that that's what and real personalities about. yeah real distinct personalities everyone yeah. isn't pulling the tropes and they're not all banging like yeah and and i i just think that like i i just think that like if for horror to get a fair shake you know like and i'm i'm usually the person that's like i just like things that are old i'm like i i also like things that are new but i just i get really tired of just a fucking family dynamic a fucking people moving into a house because they just got a fucking divorce like i'm just and they've got one snotty kid and the other kid who's a little more like a carbon copy of the dad and doesn't understand why his sister's being so bratty all the time yeah Yeah. and 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 like some fucking toddler chewing peanut butter delivering his fucking lines this tea's pretty good yes this tea is really good what do we got next for coming up next we have a twofer uh, double feature, a back-to-back bonanza. Yeah, we're gonna watch the eye, and then we're gonna watch the eye. Two eyes. <laughs> oh my god, that's meta. It is. Just and you know why we're doing it? Because it's 2020, and our vision is clear. It, our vision is clear, Wes. Yes, that's exactly why we're doing this. Um, great call. I like this. Yes, that's exactly why we're doing this. Um, yeah, we really wanted to do the eye, but we—I mean, the remake—because um, it is like one of those interesting takes on modern horror. But the original is so strong; like, we can't choose between the two, mm-hmm. and that's a nice feeling to have instead of 
well, I'll do Inside, but I refuse to do the remake, or mm-hmm. I won't even watch the Carrie remake, or I don't want to do the original of this. We need to do the remake of like mm-hmm. The Hills Have Eyes. We have to do that. We have to do that. Like but to be able to not choose or to be compelled to do them both back to back is really it's a, that's a unique treat. So that's mm-hmm. what we're gonna do. Particularly since so many uh, and the uh, films in the early two thousands were imported remakes of um, J-horror, or just Asian, because this is not a Japanese. The Eye's not Japanese, I don't think. Well, not unlike The Grudge that we were just talking about. Exactly. Yeah. So that's why we're going to do it, and that's what we're going to do, and you can't stop me, Lids. Because he's West Knight. And I'm typical Lydia. <laughs> I gotcha. You did, I got okay, confused. Let's, how are we going to wrap this up? The same way we wrap up every episode. I'm Wes Knight. And I'm Typical Lydia. And you've been listening to Dead Air. Blink twice.